Okay, good evening, everybody. A very special welcome to my mother, who's joining us for the first time here in person. Welcome. Topic this evening is Return of the Raven. We've got a lot to do. Generally, it's pretty easy to be critical, to be dismissive. We usually mean well, uh, but oftentimes it's based on our own insecurities, a sense of fear, desire for validation. But we have a tendency to, to put people down, to write people off. Right? He's crumb. He's worthless. She's different. Not one of us. I want to explore a few mysterious lines uh, towards the end of the Parsha, which I think will give us some more clarity on the importance of trying to, to see beneath the surface. The necessity of looking deeper looking further into someone's personality and not just assuming because they're different or because uh, I picked up on a particular flaw, they are therefore not worthy of my attention. We have a very strange episode after the entire experience of the Mabel. A year later, after the destruction of the world, Torah tells us, That Noach opened the window. And he sent the raven. And it just flew around. Sounds like it just kept on flying around, didn't go anywhere. Next Pasuk says, He sent the dove Meito from him. Liros hakalu hamayim me'alpeneadama to see if the water had dried. So first he sends the raven. It flies around back and forth. Then he sends the dove Meito from him, with a very clear and explicit mission, which was to see if there's dry land. It's somewhat strange that when he sends the Orev, and he sends off the raven, the Torah never tells us why did he send this bird. Our assumption is also to check out, to see what's going on. Is there dry land? But the Torah never says that. And furthermore, when he says the raven, it does not say mi'ito, from him. There seems to be an intimacy there seems to be almost this emotional connection with the Yonah that does not exist with the raven. And it becomes clearer. Right? The first mission of the Yonah, the dove does not find any place to rest. And it returns to the boat. Its water was still covering the entire surface of the world. What does Noach do? Vayishlach yodo v'yikareha. He sends out his hand and he takes the bird. Vayove osso elov and he brings the dove to him. El hateva back into the teva. 
The second time he sends out the Yonah, so the Torah tells us, the dove comes back towards evening, and this time, it has an olive branch in its mouth, right? the famous symbol of peace. It comes back towards the evening. Why in the world is the Torah giving us the picture it's coming back towards the evening? It's, it's almost a, a feel of serenity. But why do we care what time of day it was? And the third time he sends out the Yonah, and we know the Yonah does not return, and that was the clear indication that the flood was officially over. So those are some uh, insights into the actual psukim. There's no mention of the mission of the raven, and it's, there seems to be a lack of connection with that bird in contrast to the Yonah, where he's sending it a toe from himself, and there the mission is clear, and he sends out his arm to get the Yonah back, and then it comes back later, the second time, Le'es Erev, towards the evening, and then it never returns again. Why these particular birds? There are so many different species of birds on the ark. Why Dafka, the Orev, and the Yonah? Why the raven and the dove? So the dove, from a, a metaphysical standpoint, makes a lot of sense. The Gemara and Brachos tells us that Knesset Yisrael, the Jewish people, are analogous to a Yonah. Just like the dove is able to save itself through its wings, it can fly through its wings. Af Yisrael, the same thing is true with the Jewish nation. We save ourselves through the mitzvos. But we're compared to the Yonah. In Shir Hashirim, Shlomo HaMelech is describing the love that Hashem has for Klal Yisrael. And the term is, Pischi li, open up for me, Achosi, my sister, Rayosi, my friend, Yonasi, my dove. Open up for me, my dove. So dove is clearly an indication of love, of compassion. It represents Klal Yisrael. It makes sense that Noah should send out the dove. But when it comes to the raven, that's a strange bird. This was the poem that made Edgar Allan Poe famous. We're not going to quote from the entire poem. The, the amazing thing about his writing, and I'm not an expert at all, but the few poems that I read in high school, he draws you in, in a way where he almost creates this intensity. It's not a movie, you're not, you're not hearing background music, but there's this fierce attraction to what's being said. So here he's depicting this guy feeling alone, he lost the love of his life, he's hearing tapping by the window. He looks outside, deep into that darkness peering. Long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before, but the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and a flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. What was the thing making this noise? It was a raven. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil. 
Quoth the raven, nevermore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. So in the view of Edgar Allan Poe, this was not isolated. This was a trend in many places throughout Europe. The raven was viewed as an evil, devilish bird. From a Torah standpoint, we view it in the same way. What could be bad about a bird? Right? So there's a Pasuk in Tehillim, David HaMelech writes, No sein livhei melachma, you give food to the animals, livnei ore vasher yikuru, to the young ravens who call out to you. Hashem gives food to the entire animal kingdom, and he gives nourishment to the young ravens who are calling out. Explains Rashi that really the raven is achzari. The nature of this bird is cruel. Achzari al-banav, it's callous to its own children. Hashem though has compassion upon the entire species. And Hashem somehow orchestrates little worms and other forms of food for the young ravens. Because without Hashem, these little birds would die. Why would they die? Because their parents would neglect them. Sounds like we agree to some degree with Edgar Allan Poe. There's a richness. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean the bird is wicked. Animals don't have bahira. There's no free will. But there are characteristics of this animal that seem to be ra, that seem to be evil. Why did Noah then send the raven? You could say, from a very uh, simplistic understanding, if you're sending out any creature, you want to send out the smartest you have. What is the smartest bird that we know on planet Earth? So many will tell you ravens and crows are up there at least in the top two or three. They're a very smart bird. These, bear, these, these uh, birds rate up there in intelligence with chimpanzees and dolphins. There were many uh, different types of tests that have been done on the species throughout the years. And they seem to, to have a, a lot more of an understanding than we think. Right? We say the term bird brain. Now you're a bird brain. It depends on the kind of bird. Not every bird is stupid. The raven is not. In the wild, ravens have pushed rocks on people to keep them away from their nests. They figured out ways to steal fish from fishermen by pulling on the line. They even pretend that they're dead inside of a carcass, so when other ravens come and they see a dead bird, they're not going to want to get close. As soon as those ravens fly away, then you, the smart one, get up, and now you have it all to yourself. Right? If a raven knows that other ravens are watching it hide its food, it will pretend to hide its food in place A, but really put it in a different area. And the only problem, the other birds are also smart and sometimes they catch on to that. But a raven is not a dumb bird. So the Cheskuni tells us, why did Noah send the raven? It was to determine whether or not there was dry land. Ravens, we know, are carnivores, and they eat flesh. 
they would be smart enough and they would have the desire to fly around and find any dead animal or human being. Then the raven would bring back that chunk of meat and that would be an indication the flood was over. According to the Chizkuni, that's why Noah sent the raven. Now, are ravens totally evil? And there's actually research that ravens have the ability to feel some level of empathy. When a friend raven is in a fight and it loses, then a raven will go over to its buddy and give him encouragement. Right? Pat him on the wing. Right? Next time, we could do this. They actually have a recognition of birds they're friendly with, within the same species, where even if years go by, they could remember this bird and have somewhat of a relationship with it. On the other hand, as we saw from Tehillim, they respond negatively to birds they feel threatened by, even more so within their own species, if they're strange. Meaning to say, if I don't feel that you're part of us, even though you're also a raven, but you're not part of my chevra, you're not in my clique, then I will act cruelly with you. There's an amazing Gemara where we see this proven. The Gemara has somewhat of a contradiction analyzing the nature of the orave of the raven. And on one hand, it sounds like there might be a positive quality to it. On the other hand, the Gemara quotes the Pasuk from David HaMelech that Hashem needs to feed their young because otherwise the parents would not neglect them. The Gemara says it's not a contradiction. It depends if it's white or if it's black. Not to get racist. But the Gemara means like this according to Rashi. When the little raven is born, it hatches. At that point, it's not black. It's lighter. And the, the mother and father raven don't view it as part of the mishpacha. Yeah, you're, you're a different thing. That's why they're going to neglect the young bird. Only once it gets older, it becomes darker and more black. At that point, the mother and father raven feel closer to their child. And of course we're going to take care of you because you're one of ours. So it seems both from the research, but even more importantly, from Chazal, from the Gemara, that a raven is a complex creature. It has this midah, it has a character trait of achzarius that we would define or describe as cruel. But on the other hand, when it feels that you're part of its clique, you're part of its group, then I love you, and I'll support you, and I'll encourage you. So that might explain, according to the Chizkuni, the simple understanding as to why Noah sent the raven. But that does not explain why there is no mission explicitly mentioned in the Torah, nor does that explain the difference in the emotion that Noah has with the raven in contrast to the Yonah. That's why we have to take it a step deeper. This Gemara that I'm about to share with you is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Dav Kovches. And as a disclaimer like we gave last week, whenever we speak about any episode in Parshas Bereshis or Parshas Noach, we have to know going into it, we will not understand the full picture. Even if we had millions and millions of dollars to create a movie with the greatest special effects, we would have no way to replicate it. 
we can't picture what's going on, and we're missing many pieces to the puzzle, but the goal is to get an understanding of some of the, the, the nuances, some of the, the building blocks, and I think through that at least to take home a message for ourselves. Let's read the Gemara together. Vaishalach esa arev, Noach sends out the raven, Omar Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish says as follows. The raven had a response for Noach. The raven actually had a victorious response. The bird said, Rabcha soneni va'ata senesi. Your master, meaning God, God hates me and you hate me. And this parentheses for a second, do birds actually speak? Sometimes, right? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we have parrots, and I think even the raven can copy certain words, but, but we don't believe that birds speak. So what's going on here in the Gemara? According to the Ben Yoyada, the great Ben Ishchai, he understands that this conversation is not really taking place between Noah and the bird. But we know that every living thing has a, a spiritual root, a shorish, behind it. There's a sar, there's an energy, something that doesn't exist within this world, but that's at the center, that's at the core of everything that's alive and growing. So this conversation explains the Ben Yoyada was between Noah and the sar shel orev and the spiritual source of the raven of that species. Okay. So what is the, the Sar Shel Orev, what is this force telling Noah? You must hate me, and God must hate me. God hates me because he chose seven of the kosher birds and the kosher animals. But when it comes to me and my guys, you only have two. What kind of chutzpah is that? We're not as good as they are. That's why your God hates me. Why do you hate me, Noah? Because you're sending me away. Do you realize, and this, this line seems to be an indication to what the Ben Yoyada was saying. Do you realize, Im pogeya bi sarchama, if the force of the sun, oh, saratzina, or the force of the cold would harm me, and I'm going to die while I'm gone, what's going to happen to the entire species? You're never going to have ravens in the world anymore. So your God hates me because he only chose two of us, and you hate me because you're sending me away. You're risking our future. Send away one of the other kosher animals. Don't risk us. Then he concludes with something which seems totally radical. Oh, shema le'ishti atatzarech. Or maybe you just want my wife. Mepharshim explained, that the raven was concerned that Noah had in mind to mate the other raven with a different bird. Now there's a lot to get into here which we're not going to have time. But we have this conversation. This is the, the strong argument that the sar, that the, the force of the raven has against Noah. What does Noah respond? Amrlo, Russia! You're a wicked creature. You're a sick, corrupt, twisted being. You're indeed a Russia. Chazal actually tell us that during the time on the boat, there was a restriction 
for husband and wife to be together. That was true with the people, and that was also true with all of the animals. There were only three that didn't listen, the raven being one of those three. Noah is saying back to the raven, you're projecting, young man. Just because you're living a corrupt lifestyle, don't have thoughts that I have something corrupt in my head. Russia! So that's what the Gemara says. Very mysterious. The Bermaim Chaim, one of the great the Hasidic authorities of the late 19, late 1700s, he says, based on this Gemara, we have an insight as to what Noah was doing. Why was he sending away the Orev? Was there any particular mission? No. He wanted to get rid of that creature. He wanted to get rid of that midah, of that force in the world. In the words of the Bermaim Chaim in source 11, he says, Ha'orev hazehu achzari, because of the character flaw of this force. Zeha kol shoresh hara, this is the root of bad. And Noah, who's been working for the entire year, and what that reality was, what that, that crazy... That the crazy life was in the, in the Teva, taking care of, of the future world, Noah wanted nothing more than to have a new world without the negativity, without the corruption, without the lack of morality that existed in the previous world that was destroyed. Noah was sending the Orev away for no particular mission, just to say, get out of here, you're not wanted. Vaishalach Esa'orev, please leave. We don't want selfishness, we don't want cruelty, we don't want callousness. That's why we don't have any ravens today. Makes sense. So the truth is, we still have ravens. Obviously, what happened was the bird came back, right? The return of the raven. And this whole back and forth between Noah and the, the source of the Orev, of the raven, what was Hashem thinking? We're getting a little bit deeper now. Did Hashem agree with Noah to send away the raven because it's going to be a terrible influence in the future of humanity? Or did he disagree? I think it's safe to say the fact that the bird came back and Noah didn't shacht it he didn't slaughter the raven afterwards. It seems like Hashem disagreed with Noah's decision. There's an incredible Medrash Rabbah that actually has the response of Noah. All the Gemara says that Noah yells back at the bird, Russia, you're wicked! But the Medrash Rabbah elaborates on what Noah said. He says, why do we need you here? What need is there for you in the world? Lola, chila, lola carbon. We can't eat you. You're not kosher. We can't bring you as an offering. You're not kosher to bring as an offering. Why do we even need you? Go away. Die. That was Noah's feeling. Amor HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem said to Noah, You should know you're wrong. You're viewing this creature as Ra, but you're making a mistake. The future of the world will need this species. 
You want to get rid of it forever because you see no good, you see no potential, you see no light, you only see darkness. Noach, you're misreading the situation. In the future, the world will, will need the raven. When? When are we going to need the ravens? If you're waiting for the team out of Baltimore, yeah, that's a disappointment. <laughs> so says the Medrash Rabbi, In the future, there's going to be a righteous man. He's going to stand up, and he's going to cause a drought throughout the entire world. He will need to be nourished. I need the ravens to bring him food. Who is this man that Hashem is referring to? Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu HaTishbi, Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Hashem is telling Noah, you're off. We need this species for the future because they're going to keep Eliyahu Hanavi alive. So let's just reference that story for a second. This is coming from Sefer Malachim, towards the end of the first book of Sefer Malachim. This is going back a long time. This is right after we have the division of the, the northern tribes, the ten Shvatim, and we have King Ahav. Ahav was one of the most phenomenal, intriguing Rishoyim of all time. A Jewish king of the ten northern tribes, and his life was, was just plagued with with Yerida, with descending to such low levels, but there were sparks of, of Ruchnius along the way. We have to have a, a separate discussion devoted to the life of Ahav. But generally speaking, he was viewed as one of the most destructive and, and evil kings the Jews ever had. Eliyoha Navi was now standing up to Ahav, and he told them as follows. I'm disgusted by what's happening. He built this entire palace for a Vodazara to worship the Baal. And Eliyahu says, I'm going to play hardball. I'm going to make it that there's going to be such a devastating drought that no one's going to be able to live a normal life. In the words of Eliyahu, Vayomer Eliyahu HaTishbi, Mitoshevei Gilad El Achav, Eliyahu said, Chai Hashem Elokei Yisrael, as God lives, the God of Israel, Asher Emanati Lefanav, that I stand before Him to serve. Imi Hashem Talumater, if there will be dew or rain in these years, Ki'im Lefi Devarai, it will only come through my word. Basically saying, you will not have one drop of water until I say so. Or, until you start rectifying the situation. Get rid of the Avodah get rid of the idols, let's get back to good, old-fashioned, basic monotheism, and then we'll talk about rain. Hashem tells Eliyahu, right after he makes this very harsh statement, get out of there. Don't stick around. Because you're a dead man if you do. So where does he go? Hashem tells him, go to Nachal Chris, a particular brook. There's a source of water there. You'll be able to drink from that spring. 
And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. They're going to bring you bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. It's going to be unbelievable. Right? You'll have everything you want, all you could eat directly from the ravens. This is before they had Uber Eats. They had to use ravens. Right? <laughs> and it says, The ravens did this. So Hashem is telling Noah, we cannot destroy the species, we can't let them die, because we need them for the future to bring food to Eliyahu Hanavi. Why do you need the ravens? Why do you need them for that? You can't think of a different bird that they could also bring food to Eliyahu Hanavi. Kill the raven, it's an evil species. Although it's a complex bird, overall it's, it's achzori, it's cruel. Let it die. And think of a different way to feed Eliyahu, right? Pigeons are also good. They have too many of them in New York. Use them for helping Eliyahu. So the Mitsudas David, one of the great commentaries on Tanakh, he explains that Hashem needed to use the raven to teach Eliyahu Hanavi a lesson. And this seems to be the same lesson that he was teaching Noah as well when he said, don't allow the species to die. Explains the Metsudas David, Eliyahu, I'm letting these birds keep you alive and nourish you. These birds are naturally cruel to their own young, but yet they have compassion to keep you alive. Why don't you, Eliyahu Hanavi, have compassion and stop the suffering of so many Jewish people. Stop this drought. If ravens can do it, so can you. It sounds like Elio Hanavi was too strong. Why was he so strong? Why did he want to cause so much suffering? He didn't care about his brothers and sisters. He didn't care about the fact that you have families that are, that are totally bereft. And, and left just wondering, what are we going to do? Where are we going to drink water from? He didn't care about people. He cared about people deeply. But he thought they were so evil. They were so off. They were so low that they needed this level of punishment. They needed this level of suffering to somehow awaken them. And Hashem's telling Eliyahu, you misread the situation. You're one of the greatest prophets of all time, and I'll always love you, but you misread Klal Yisrael. You underestimated the Jewish people. You underestimated the power of the neshama. They don't deserve this level of suffering. That was the message Hashem was sending Eliyahu by having the ravens bring him food. When Hashem was telling Noah the exact same thing, don't kill off the species, why not? It's the source of evil. We don't want those characteristics in the new world. We don't want those flaws in our new life. Hashem was telling Noah the same message. All you're seeing right now is the negative, but there's more. There's more this thing can accomplish. This was not a new mistake that Noah was making. This was the original mistake that Noah made. What was he doing while he was building that teva? What was the point of him spending so many years building this massive boat? So the Gemara tells us, 
He was going around and he was giving rebuke. He was telling all of the people he came in contact with, you should know you're all going to die a horrible, miserable death if you don't start doing tshuva. If you don't return to God right now, you have no chance. It's going to be terrible. And what was the response of everybody? They looked at him and they laughed. And the Gemara says this. Old man, stop it. You know, fire and brimstone. We're in a new age now. And even if there is some kind of flood, we have ways of working with that. We have technology. We're not concerned for anything. But you're all going to die. It's the same way we would feel walking in midtown Manhattan and some guy is standing there in a soapbox. If you don't embrace this particular religion or ideology, you're going to burn in hell forever. How much does that scare me? Maybe he scares me, right? Don't want to get too close to that guy. But the message itself means nothing. The Svorno says that Noah, although he did critique and he did give rebuke, and he made it very clear, if you don't change, you're not going to live. What did he not do? He didn't teach the people the way of Hashem. He didn't share with humanity what it means to emulate the divine. How embracing a life of chesed and selflessness can be the ultimate connection with the creator of the universe. He didn't do any of that. He didn't teach people the leches bedrochav to follow in Hashem's ways. That's why he failed. That's why people didn't listen to him. Why didn't he teach them Hashem's ways? Why didn't he tell them all of the beauty and the depth and the wisdom that the Torah has to offer? Why was he only fire and brimstone? Because he didn't believe that they would be receptive to anything else. Who am I dealing with? with a bunch of ravens, a bunch of evil, corrupt, twisted, lowly people. They're not going to be receptive to this message of goodness and kindness and spirituality. The only thing that could potentially shake them is fire and brimstone. Noah didn't lack faith in God. Noah had tremendous amuna, But he did lack faith in humanity. He didn't think they would actually be able to change. He didn't teach them the ways of the divine. I remember reading an uh, essay by Dr. Pelkovitz. He says there was a 15-year-old boy, Moshe, that his parents sent him to, to see him and to have a conversation with him. And Moshe was really on the edge. For years now, he had no interest in learning. The yeshiva he was presently in asked him to politely leave. He was no longer wanted there. And Moshe came in because he was questioning authority. He didn't enjoy learning at all. And he had no interest in really the entire Torah lifestyle. His parents were frustrated. Both mom and dad, his father was a prominent rabbi. They felt like you have your older brothers they're all B'nai Torah. They're all sincere, devoted, into learning. Why can't you just be like your older brothers? Moshe explained to Dr. Pelkovitz that really the only person in my family 
I feel comfortable with, that I have a real relationship with, is my grandfather. That's my, my father's, my mother's father it was. There's something about our connection where he gets me, he understands me, and he's not so judgmental. He understands I'm going through a hard time, but he really sees me and he appreciates me, and that's why I feel so close to him. So there were a few therapy sessions with Jess Moshe, with Moshe and his parents, and then they had a joint session with Moshe, mom and dad, and his grandfather. And they're going about different issues, the parents are speaking, Moshe's speaking, Dr. Pelkovitz is sharing his own insights, and the grandfather interrupts and he says as follows. He says, the truth is, we don't have to get so complicated. I think it's pretty simple. I remind, I'm reminded of myself when I was Moshe's age. I grew up in Kovna. I was one of seven children. And I had a very similar personality to Moshe. I had a hard time sitting. I was not a stellar student. I was not excelling in my own learning. But at least in that time, I was able to find my own way, make some money. But I was somewhat of an outcast with my family. The years leading up to World War II, I was getting very nervous. I did have my finger on the pulse as I was out and about, and I was speaking to people, I made sure to follow the news. And I felt strongly that the family needs to leave the Kovna and travel to the United States of America. Get visas, get any paperwork we need, leave to America before it's too late. And I tried explaining the grandfather, I tried convincing my parents, I tried convincing my older siblings, and they laughed at me. They thought I was overly neurotic. Settle down, you know, come on, we'll be fine. These things have happened before. We have a rise in anti-Semitism and then things settle down. We'll have a new government, it'll be okay. He said, after pushing so hard, I realized I'm not going to convince them. And probably one of the hardest decisions of my life was, I chose to leave myself. I'm the only one who survived in the family. So I was a little bit rebellious. I did question authority. But the reason, and he looked at his daughter, the mother of Moshe, and his son-in-law, he said, the reason why we're alive today, the reason why our family's in existence, is because I was able to question and make those decisions. Moshe has a very similar personality. Do whatever it takes to nurture him, find him the right yeshiva, but he'll be okay happens to be years later, the postscript, that Baruch Hashem Moshe was okay. He did not go into learning as his other siblings did, but he had a wonderful, beautiful family, Shemrei Torah Mitzvos. He himself followed in his grandfather's footsteps of becoming a self-made, wealthy businessman, and he's the supporter of many, many Torah institutions. So sometimes when you pick up on a flaw, Right, we pick up on either if it's a rebelliousness or uh, a lack of sensitivity or an anger issue. Everything in the world that we see as Ra also has a Tzad Tov. It also has, if you look a little bit deeper, if you scratch beneath the surface, you will find goodness. And it's not even though I have this, 
But it's because I have this personality, I can use this to thrive in other areas. The Gemara actually gives the example of how to learn Torah. The Gemara says, you should be like an orave, you should be like a raven when you learn Torah. Gemara Erevin, Davchav Beis, source number 16. What does that mean to be like a raven? So, one interpretation is, Shemashchir Panavalehem, that you want to blacken your face with Torah. I'm so engrossed, I'm so engaged in the study. The second interpretation is Rava. Rava says that just like the Orev, just like this bird neglects its family, so too you should be able to neglect your family. Now it does not mean in a bad, unhealthy way. I no longer say hello to my wife and children because I'm so involved with learning. That's not the advice of the Gemara. But rather it's saying we should be able not to be held down, to, be, to, to push, and, 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 and as much as I possibly can, even though that might mean going early in the morning, coming back late at night, I have to make this my obsession, just like a raven. It sounds like from this Gemara and Erevin, the same exact quality this bird has that makes it considered achzori, that it could be deemed cruel or numb, but there's also an element of loyalty. There's an element of strength that's not existing even though it has this mida, but it's the very mida itself. It's this character trait that, that gives it strength if channeled, if directed in the right way. There is a, a young lady, Dina Guberfield. She was a teenager at the turn of the century, early 1900s, living somewhere in Europe. And she had a very interesting childhood, similar to the story with Moshe. She had very little interest in, in Torah Judaism, and it wasn't even clear why. She would dress in a very different way, always keeping up with the modern styles. She hated the, uh, the limitations, the confines of Abtsnias. And by the time she was a young teenager, she would be mocking her father and mother and her siblings for the religious lifestyle they had. Eventually, she got swept away in Zionism, which is an amazing thing. Right? Nowadays, if a child's struggling and they're going off the derech, halavai, they should be swept away in Zionism, right? Unless you're Satmer. But usually, <laughs> that's a better option than many other things out there. So he got swept away in Zionism, secular Zionism. She met a nice Jewish young man who had no religious background whatsoever. They moved to Eretz Yisrael before it was officially the land of Israel. Well, it always was the land of Israel, but before it was a state. And they settled in Tel Aviv. Years go by, very little contact between her father and mother and herself. Dina's there. She now has a few children of her own. She sends a telegram to her family back in Europe asking them, maybe you want to consider joining us here in Israel. Right, now all the children are out of the house, and we'd love to have you live here with us. Father and mother read this, and they're both shocked. Right? It's very surprising she would even want us there. You know, her, her rebellious nature, why would she want mom and dad? So the father's gut reaction was, 
Not a good idea, not going to be okay to live in Tel Aviv, leaving the, the shtetl life is going to be way too much of a radical transition. It's not happening. But like all good Jewish mamas, she said to her husband, I think we should ask a Shiloh. Let's ask the rabbi what he thinks. I don't think we should just decide, you know, off the cuff. So they went to their local rav. They sat down and had a conversation, had a few conversations. Basically, the rabbi of their town thought that if you have the chance to make aliyah, you're not really leaving anything behind. You're retired. This could be an amazing experience for you personally living in Eretz Yisrael. And you never know what could happen with the relationship, right? Living together with your daughter at this point, she was in her later 20s. But uh, I would encourage you to go for it. So after a lot of agmas nevesh, a lot of turmoil and back and forth, Tati and Mami decided we're going to make the move to Eretz Yisrael, and they did. They get to Tel Aviv, and the first reaction of the father was, what am I doing here, right? The hustle and bustle and so many Jews, but they're not religious, this is not gonna work. Getting ready though for the first Shabbos, small little apartment with Dina and her husband and her children. They, uh, about to light Shabbos candles. And the mother goes and says the bracha. She does not think for a moment that Dina's going to join her in lighting the candles, but she was impressed that at least she set them up for me. Right, a nice Shabbosic environment. She starts saying the bracha, and when she's in the middle, she sees out of the corner of her eye that Dina is also lighting candles. And she's also saying the bracha. That was the first time in Dina Gruppenfeld's life that she lit Shabbos candles. And she told her mother, you know, listen, now that you're here, it's a nice thing, we'll light Shabbos candles together. Don't think in a million years we're going to start being Shomer Shabbat. That's not going to happen, but we'll light Shabbos candles. As time passed, the house became more kosher, more, uh, you know, wholesome for the mother and father. And then Dina and her husband slowly began to change themselves. And their family went a little bit of a different direction. And their kids were no longer going to secular schools, but they were going to yeshivas, and then different types of yeshivas. <coughs> Years passed, and they had a family that was Shomer Torah Mitzvos. The parents of Dina realized that the stubbornness, the rebellious nature, almost that, that fight within their daughter that was the source of so much friction when she was younger, that was actually her ability to now push to keep the family together, following Torah, bedikduk, meticulously, with love, with passion. It was that same exact midah. And she told her husband, although you wanted to write her off many times, Baruch Hashem, we didn't. Because that same flaw turned into her greatest asset. Now there are over 100 children and grandchildren that come from Dina, the rebellious teenager. Why does it say, The Yonah came back in the evening. What's special about the evening? The evening, Ace Erev, Orev means raven, but it also means darkness. It's dark. 
Just when it's dark outside, perhaps part of the message was, that's when you could see the Yonah as well. It's not all dark. There could be light within the darkness. Explains Remeyer Shapiro Melublin. He says, this was really part of the message, the sign of the rainbow. Just today, I got so many calls about a rainbow. Do we make a bracha? Do we not make a bracha? Does this mean God wants to destroy us? No, don't worry, you're okay. We do live in Florida. But it is an amazing thing that I can't remember a Parshas Noah where I have not seen a rainbow. What's the message of the rainbow? Explains Remeyer Shapiro. What is a rainbow? It's the, it's the beauty, it's the radiance of light. But when do you see that light? It's only after it rains. It's only after the, the, the clouds are there and the sky is dark. When things look so bleak, when it looks like there's no future, when it's all raw, it's all bad, I'll throw the whole thing out, it's never going to be beautiful again. Then as the clouds begin to dissipate and the rays of the sun come through, it's right then and only then you have the beauty of the rainbow. Explains Remeyer Shapiro, this was part of what Hashem was teaching Noah. Your initial flaw was that you were lacking faith in humanity. You were tzaddik, you so olam, you were so righteous, and you were so dovak, you were so connected to me, but you didn't believe in the people. That's why you didn't teach them the ways of Hashem. Never give up hope in humanity. Never underestimate the power of the neshama. Never look at the Oriv and say, there's no need for you in this world, because there's always a need. Like the Mishnah says in Perkyovos, Altihi Vaz Lechol Adam. Don't ever put a person down. Altihi Maflig Lechol Davar. Don't ever look at something and say that it's worthless. She'ein Lechol Adam, She'ein Lo Shah. There is no man that doesn't have his hour. Ve'ein Lechol Davar, She'ein Lo Makom. And there is nothing in this world. There is no species, there is no flower, there is no annoying beetle that doesn't have its purpose and its place. Don't put people down. Don't write people off. And even if we look at this and we say, that's not one of ours, that's too white to be a raven. Just because you're not one of ours, I can't dismiss you. That was the lesson Hashem was teaching Noah. That was the lesson HaKadosh Baruch Hu was teaching Elio and Novi. That's the message of the Orev. That's the guiding principle of a rainbow. We should all have tremendous yata deshmaya to be able to embrace as many people as we possibly can, not to dismiss, not to passel, not to push aside, but to scratch a little bit beneath the surface and see that radiant light within every neshama. Oh, yeah.